today on Ag News Daily. I'm heartened by the fact that candidates now traveling through Iowa have put forward a number of comprehensive and detailed plans to try to revitalize the rural economy and to improve the quality of life in rural places. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined as always by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Mike. Just got back from my last stint at the Iowa State Fair, and I am fared out for this year. I bet you are. My question is, how many foods on a stick did you eat this year? <laughs> uh, I ate a pork. I ate a couple of pork bellies on a stick, a fried Snickers on a stick. Um, how was that? I've never had the fried oh, Snickers on a stick. fried Snickers. Ooh, super duper good. I'm sure it's like a million calories, but whatever. Calories don't count when you're at the fair. Yeah, that's what I think, too. You did lots of walking, yeah, so I think it counteracts each other. Yeah, it's a push. You're exactly right. That's what I'm telling myself, at least. Right. You've got to lie to yourself in order to uh, <laughs> not be too depressed about it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, we also have Madison Honkamp on the line with us. Madison, what food, fair foods on a stick have you had this year? I honestly haven't had any on a stick, oh, no. but I like to keep it... I love the bacon brisket mac and cheese mm-hmm. yep. from the rib shack. That's pretty much all I've been eating. Yeah. That's kind of, of that. my go-to at the it's fair. Good. It, it's pretty good. How do you feel about the hard-boiled egg on a stick? I personally, n- not for me. Like the free eggs that yes, the, at the uh, egg council. I, yeah. I love them. I like hard-boiled eggs though. I do just not in the middle of the summer. When it's, you know, 85 degrees at a hard-boiled egg on a stick, mm-mm, doesn't sound good to me. Well, I'm kind of the odd one out in this conversation because I just, I don't care for hard-boiled eggs any time of year. Hard-boiled eggs and sweet potatoes are really the only two <laughs> foods that I'm a hard pass on. Yeah, all right, that's fair. Anything else, I will shove it in my mouth and <laughs> eat it. But those two <laughs> things, I just, I just can't do. All right, that's fair, totally fair. All right. Well, thank you, ladies, for your coverage of the Iowa State Fair. That is some uh, some great research you did. That is the kind of shoe leather reporting that we are known for here <laughs> yes. at Ag News Daily. Mm-hmm. It's always important. But, oh, it is. But, Delaney, <laughs> you mentioned uh, the pork bellies on a stick, and I think that's relevant because pigs continue to be in the news. Thailand has just announced they are banning pig imports from Myanmar over, guess what disease? Yes, African swine fever. African swine fever. Yep, Thailand has said they're going to ban imports of pigs from Myanmar for 90 days uh, because Myanmar confirmed its first case of ASF earlier this week. So that spread across Southeast Asia is continuing, and you know other countries are, are trying to do what they can to mitigate it. But um, Thailand has also banned pigs, pig imports from Laos, and now they've added Myanmar to that list. So I've got to know, say, I think it's pronounced Myanmar. Well, how does it? I think it's Myanmar. Myanmar? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm not whatever. Sure. Listeners, chime in. I don't know. Is it Myanmar or Myanmar? Uh, well, or, or it's, you can just say Burma. Mm, can we still call it Burma? I don't know. We have, so I guess the reason I say that is my hometown has a lot of Burmese people and they call themselves Burmese. So I assume that that's still okay. Oh, sure. Interesting. Yes. All right. Well, so that's the news. There is uh, is the name of the country formerly known as Burma has <laughs> African swine fever yes. and can no longer ship pigs to Thailand. Yes. 
Well, what since we're talking, well, yeah, since we're talking about African swine fever, of course, it started in China there, and we had some news earlier this week with China and President Trump and all the tariff hubbub. But it, it seems like now, so President Trump said, or or his administration said, rolling back tariffs to December fifteenth. Now it appears that perhaps those last however many products are going to be split up into two separate rounds of tariffs. So again, breaking those tariffs up into two separate rounds, one of them will be, it looks like, slated for September 1st, and then others will be delayed until December 1st because Chinese media is reporting that China is ready to take necessary countermeasures in response to that first round that go into action on September 1st. So I think there was a little bit of confusion earlier in the media and whatnot that all of the tariffs were getting pushed to December 15th, and it doesn't seem like that's the case now. Right. It's it's just 110 or some billion dollars worth. Yes. But China has said that they are going to retaliate. They plan to retaliate. And interestingly enough, I don't know that it's necessarily all because of the Chinese trade war stuff, but Mike, I know you're a big, you watch the yield curve inversion and whatnot, and we have seen signals that the yield curve, known as an inversion of the yield curve, is signaled that a downturn is likely approaching for the overall economy here as the year goes on and into 2020. Yes. So that was the big news yesterday. It was a huge sell-off in the equity markets. We saw a big uh, rise in the purchases of bonds. And yeah, what happened was the yield on the two-year treasury climbed above the yield on the 10-year treasury, and that's called an inversion. And historically, inversions happen before recessions, but it's not like an inversion happens. Oh my goodness, a recession is tomorrow. Right. Typically, you know, I think the average time is 22 months from an inversion to a recession. So, I mean, we could be talking maybe in the next two years, we would possibly be entering recessionary territory. But there's also the entire idea that maybe this whole thing is a self-fulfilling prophecy. We saw the market fell off yesterday because we inverted, because that's an indication that maybe we're going to have a recession. So everybody just starts planning for a recession, and then that causes a recession. Oh, interesting. So, you know, we'll just have to just wait and see. Huh. But, yeah, that was some, some big news in the market. Okay. Madison, what do you have for news for today? Um, well, I just have a kind of a quick update on the EPA dicamba lawsuit. I know we've touched on this before, but the agency is facing a second lawsuit from environmental advocates who allege that the EPA officials ignored scientific evidence and complaints from agricultural producers in the 2018 approval of dicamba. And really their their main argument is saying that the agency didn't really set these restrictions. It was more of the company that produced dicamba and they haven't really taken any huge steps forward to prevent dicamba drift from damaging crops again this year. So this is definitely something we'll keep our eye on and see kind of how that plays out. All right. Yes, we will. We'll have to continue to focus on that issue. It's going to be a hot topic for the foreseeable future, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yes, definitely. 
Well, I've got a little bit of news, and this is, uh, you know, kind of I, I picked up on it because it is revolving around commodity futures, which is the industry I'm in now. And, of course, all of us in the farming business are relying on commodity futures. But the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which oversees the entire industry, announced they had gotten a $16 million penalty in um, – in a case against Kraft Foods and Mondelez Global, which is the company that makes Oreos, uh, basically they're saying that those two companies gained $4 million by violating, manipulating, and position and violating position limit provisions of the of CFTC regulations. And basically they said that in the wheat market, um, high cash wheat prices in 2011, uh, those two companies executed a strategy to purchase and stand for delivery on more than 3,000 futures contracts of, uh, of SRW spring red wheat and uh, to send the market a false signal, which I thought was fascinating. And uh, so, yeah, $16 million in penalties. You said it's the company that makes Oreos? Uh-huh. Huh. Yep. Interesting. And Kraft hmm. Foods. Yes. Okay. I guess I didn't realize that they were one and the same. No, they're they're two separate. Oh. So it was okay. cra- these two companies work together. Gotcha. To uh, manipulate the market is is what they're saying. Ah. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. Uh, a little yeah, insider well, so trading. Basically, yes, yeah. indeed. It's got folks trying to work their way around the market, and guess what? The it took a couple of years, but we sorted it out. <laughs> okay. Well, one other thing that could impact the markets and probably already has a little bit was President Trump's recent tweet he made, I believe it was yesterday afternoon, uh, tweeting about wheat growers and wheat production into the state or into the country of Japan. He basically tweeted about Japan and, and their lack of buying U.S. wheat and said, uh, where was that tweet at? He said, I said, quote, listen, we have a massive deficit with Japan. They send thousands and thousands, millions of cars. We send them wheat. Wheat. That's not a good deal. And they don't even want our wheat. They do it because they want us to at least feel that we're okay. You know they do it to make us feel good. And wheat growers were not happy with that tweet that President Trump sent out. The National Association of Wheat Growers tweeted on Wednesday a response that said, quote, Mr. President, Japan is the number one market for U.S. wheat exports on average, where we hold just over 50% of the market. So I think they're a little nervous that Japan will not be happy about this tweet and potentially back off on their wheat imports from the U.S. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I had not really followed that tweet. I was watching kind of the market meltdown yeah. yesterday on the equity mm-hmm. side. That is, that's frustrating i can see why wheat growers would be annoyed it's a little frustrating yes yeah well madison what kind of news do you have for us today anything else um i just kind of had wanted to touch on the tweet from yesterday as well any additional thoughts well i don't know i think it's just kind of almost not really crappy but yeah that he said like they don't want our wheat but i think it could really kind of piss japan off and hopefully sure. they don't take out, they're going to take it negatively, but they don't end up giving and have a negative impact on us. Right, right. So we'll just have to stay tuned. And at the end of the day, there's a ton of global wheat suppliers, and the U.S. is proud to have 50% of that market. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. Well, speaking of markets, Delaney, do you have any other news or should we dive into the markets? I have just one other quick announcement here I wanted to share with our listeners. The USDA released a statement today that any producers who were in a spring flood area and declared an emergency they will defer the accrual of interest for all their agricultural producers on crop year insurance premiums to help those farmers affected by extreme weather. Oh, good news. So yes. a little bit of a little bit of a, not a safety net, but a lifeline, right. I suppose. Yeah, and it's not a huge deferral, but they will defer that accrual of interest on spring 2019 crops insurance premiums to either the applicable termination date or for two months until November 30th. So whichever of those two comes first. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Yes, we will. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, ladies, why don't we go ahead and jump in and see what the markets did for the day. How's that sound? Let's do it. Before we jump into the markets, why don't we turn it over to our good friend Ray Bohax and see what's going on in the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I'm Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. The intake valve is the gateway to the cylinder bore. If the valve lash is excessive, then valve lift is lost and in turn, intake port flow drops along with the engine's horsepower and torque. In regard to the exhaust valve, decreased lift limits cylinder evacuation during the exhaust stroke and cause power and longevity due to excessive heat. In addition, the incorrect valve lash impacts the valve timing and engine reliability. If the valve clearance is too tight, then the valve will open earlier and close later than intended. If it is too loose, the valve will open later and close sooner. The effect of setting the valve lash too tight can result in the valve not fully closing on the seat. This will allow cylinder pressure to escape along with high temperature combustion gases. It is possible then for the temperature of the valve head and the valve seat to become so high that rapid burning can occur. This has the potential to flame cut the cylinder head beyond the seat and valve face. This is usually further aggravated by charring of the oil film on the valve stem which causes the valve to stick in the guide. If the valve lash is excessive from a lack of adjustment, the engine is noisy and cylinder fill suffers. In addition, there is excessive wear from the valve pounding against the seat. Adjusting the valves also affords the opportunity to look things over and spot potential problems. The state of the lash is also telling. A valve that is found to be too tight before adjustment usually is indicative of a valve seat recession or the valve pulling through the cylinder head, in either case a serious problem if left unaddressed. In contrast, excessive clearance can reveal a valve stem that is mushrooming or worn parts such as the rocker or adjustment mechanism. You will find differences on each cylinder, but it should be minimal, the clearance not too tight or loose when compared to the others. 
Well, thanks, Ray, folks. Be sure to check out his podcast. You can pick it up on the Global Ag Network. Just head to globalagnetwork.com, and you'll see it there. In the markets today, we had broadly mixed trade. Corn was up slightly, beans and wheat down uh, fairly heavily today. As we take a look at the corn market, September corn was up one and three quarters at 360 and three quarters. The December contract up three quarters of a penny to finish at 371 even. In soybeans, September down seven and a half at 858 even. November down seven and a quarter, closed the day at 870 and three quarters. And in Chicago wheat, that September contract was down four and three quarters, closing at 469 even. December down three and three quarters, finishing the day at 474 and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, we had some mixed trade in live cattle with that October contract up two and a half cents, closing at 98.52.50. The December contract down 27 and a half to finish at 104.27.50. And gains today in feeder cattle. That September contract was up 47 and a half cents at 133.30, with the October up 37.50 to finish at 133.75. And weakness in lean hogs today. The October contract was down $1.7750, excuse me, yeah, dollar seventy-seven fifty at sixty-five even, and the December down a dollar oh two and a half to close at sixty-three seventy-five. Quick look over at the dairy market in Class Three milk. We've got slight weakness today with that August contract down two cents at seventeen sixty-two, and the September down three to finish the day at seventeen seventy-seven. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, I'm really excited. As I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, I had the chance to catch up with Secretary Bill Sack, who was also Iowa's former governor for many, many years and talk about this year's political climate and what it's going to take for a Democratic candidate to secure rural voters. Well, today I am chatting with former Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who also served, of course, as Iowa's governor for many, many years. Secretary Vilsack, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, it's great to be with you. So tell me a little bit about your involvement this election cycle, being the former governor of Iowa, as well as a former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, you're in a very unique position this year. Well, I feel very, very strongly that uh, the Democratic Party needs to do a better job of speaking to and about rural places and rural people. I think uh, for far too long, the party has not fully understood the important role and contribution that rural America makes to the rest of the country. And I'm heartened by the fact that candidates now traveling through Iowa have put forward a number of comprehensive and detailed plans to try to revitalize the rural economy and to improve the quality of life in rural places. So tell me a little bit about the focus on rural group and, and what your role is in working with them to get some of these candidates that have a deep understanding for rural America. Well, former Lieutenant Governor Patty Judge, who was also the Secretary of Agriculture in Iowa, formed this group uh, after her Senate campaign uh, with the idea that, again, uh, candidates needed to be informed and educated about the important role that rural America plays and the need for candidates to speak directly uh, to rural people about their small towns, about their farms and ranches, and and, uh, about the importance of investing in in rural places. Uh, This is a particularly uh, topical time. As we have candidates coming through Iowa, uh, you know, there's a, a very serious uh, set of issues that, that we're currently facing in agriculture. Obviously, the trade disputes uh, have made it more difficult for a number of commodities. Uh, we're not selling as much as we used to to China. Uh, we have a disadvantage in Japan because of pulling out of TPP. Uh, we're awaiting ratification of the USMCA agreement with Mexico and Canada. 
So there are a lot of a lot of things going on in the trade share area that are, are impacting and affecting uh, farmers and farm income. At the same time, this is a state, uh, the Midwest in particular, that's committed to biofuels, and I think that there is concern about recent uh, decisions by the EPA to continue to grant waivers to uh, refineries to avoid the, the requirements of the renewable fuel standard. So there are a lot of questions uh, about specific issues, but there's also the need for a comprehensive vision for how we might be able to improve uh, the economy and quality of life in Iowa. And I think candidates are stepping up and making uh, some very bold commitments uh, to rural people uh, about what they would do if they were elected president. In your opinion, Secretary Vilsack, how do you think a Democratic nominee or, or the candidates that are all running right now, how do they win over the rural vote? Because as we know, in the last election, they were very heavily President Trump supporters. Well, I think they've got to show up uh, in rural places, and I think the candidates are beginning to do that. I think they need to understand and express appreciation for the contribution that rural folks make to the country. Uh, I think they do have to have specific ideas about how the government can partner with people in rural communities to uh, increase and improve economic opportunity. A number of candidates have seen uh, the opportunity that uh, biomanufacturing could play, taking agricultural waste product and converting it into chemicals and materials and fabrics and fibers to fuel, all creating new manufacturing jobs. A number of candidates have expressed the need for uh, our land uh, for farmers who uh, who have the ability to sequester carbon to develop a relationship where markets can be developed and investments made in those conservation practices from outside the farm and outside the government. So a, a number of revenue streams being created, uh, investments in infrastructure, and improvements in quality of life. All of this has been part of a comprehensive plan that a number of candidates have set out. And I think if you show up, uh, you express appreciation for the contribution, and you say, I, I believe the gov- government can partner, and here are some ideas and thoughts uh, about how we might best be able to partner. Uh, I think that folks in smaller communities and on the farms will at least be receptive. Uh, uh, it certainly will be a, an improvement over what we've done in the past, uh, which is sometimes uh, not spoken directly to folks and not shown up. And when you're looking at candidates for this cycle of elections, have you had any candidates that have reached out to you for help on creating their rural policy, or have you had any input with any of the candidates? Well, I've been fortunate to be able to talk to virtually every one of the candidates uh, who is running about the importance of committing to rural places and rural people. And I've been very uh, pleased with the fact that a number of uh, concepts and ideas that uh, I worked on when I was Secretary of Agriculture and even the things I worked on as governor are being incorporated into the plans. Uh, I, I really do think the candidates are taking this very seriously. I think they understand the stress uh, and difficulties uh, that folks feel, not only economically but also emotionally, as they see their sons and daughters and grandkids uh, grow up in other uh, locations and other places away from where they grew up. Um, uh, I think there's an understanding of that, an appreciation for that, and I think they're taking this very, very seriously. And I think islands in particular are being responsive to this. Uh, the, the crowds are large. Uh, the enthusiasm is, is, is growing. Uh, so I think there's a receptive audience out there, and, and, it, and that's important. I think both parties need to make sure that we never take uh, for granted rural America and that we never ignore rural America. And I know this is very early on in the election cycle. You probably don't want to endorse a candidate yet, but do you feel that there are any candidates in your mind or maybe a couple of candidates that have a standout rural policy? Well, I, I will tell you, I've been, I have actually been very impressed with the comprehensive nature. I think there are five or six or seven candidates that have already expressed detailed plans. Um, 
So I think at the end of the day, uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is, he or she will be able to draw from all of those plans and put together an incredibly solid, comprehensive, and doable uh, plan that will actually make a difference in rural places, that will create jobs, that will enable uh, moms and dads to be able to say to their sons and daughters and their grandkids, there is opportunity here to do some really amazing, innovative, creative uh, uh, stuff in, in rural places. And you can live in a place where the schools will be better financed and there'll be better medical care and uh, access to the kind of quality of life opportunities that, that I think make life special in rural places. So I, I'm I'm excited about the fact that I think the Democratic Party has Party finally awakened uh, to uh, the need to, to speak directly to rural folks, and I think that they are growing in understanding and appreciation. I had one candidate basically say, you know, I don't know what kind of impression I'm making on, on, on islands, but I will tell you they have made a heck of an impression on me. Uh, I understand how hard they're working and how, how deeply they care about this country, and he said it's, it, you know, it's really an impressive thing to go through this process. So I, I think we're having an impact on these candidates, and you know, not all of them. In fact, only one of them is going to be successful, uh, but the rest of them are going to go back and either be senators or governors or uh, people of, of, of importance, and they'll go back with a much better understanding of, of rural places and rural people, and I think that's, that's good for the country. Absolutely. It's, it's exciting to know the future of our rural economy will be represented by some of these people that have a true understanding or want to understand really the issues that impact rural America. One of the issues that they've been talking about, a lot of candidates have been talking about, but haven't necessarily offered a solution on, has been what's going on right now with our trade situation with China. All of the candidates have, have mentioned, or not maybe not all of them, but a lot of them have mentioned, you know, tariffs weren't the best way to hold China accountable. In your discussions with these candidates, have there been any solutions that have been offered up, or even as your former position as U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, what should we have done differently to hold China accountable? Well, I, I think the candidates, uh, and I think all of us, recognize that, uh, that the administration was correct in pointing out that China does not operate fairly. Uh, they clearly have a set of rules in China that are different than any other rules in any other country, and that it was appropriate to call out China uh, for for the things that they're doing. I, I think the question that many people have and many candidates have expressed to me is why America went at this alone when everybody else in the country, in the world is being treated the same way by China. Why didn't we take the time to put together an alliance, a coalition of nations to go to China as a global community and basically say, look, you can't continue to steal uh, technology uh, from us. You can't continue to require our companies to have an unfair advantage in, in your in your country to be able to do business with against state-owned enterprises. Um, if we had gone with a coalition of nations, it would have been much more difficult for China to uh, have uh, basically uh, retaliated against American agriculture because they would have had to have retaliated against all of agriculture around the world. Uh, and I think it would have made it much more difficult and, and potentially more likely that China would pay attention and, and make the changes that are going to be required. When you go it alone, uh, you essentially then take the full hit uh, from the retaliation. And I've had a number of folks uh, from Europe explain to me that they, they are very pleased with what's going on because they get the benefit of both worlds. If the United States is successful in changing China's way of doing business, Europe will also benefit. At the same time, they're not paying any price uh, for this. In fact, uh, they're just in the dairy industry, the Europeans have seen a 71% increase in the sale of powder skim milk powder to China uh, in part because of the retaliatory tariffs that are being assessed against the U.S. So they're benefiting on both sides. Um, and we, we probably 
could have done a better job of working with them uh, to put more pressure on China. Absolutely. Secretary Vilsack, one final question for you. Do you plan to endorse a Democratic candidate, or are you waiting till the end when they get weeded out to just the final representative of the Democratic nominee? Well, my wife and I obviously are, are uh, want a caucus, uh, you know, and, and it, you know, unlike uh, uh, situations where you're in a primary state where you can go into a, a booth and no one knows exactly who you vote for and how you vote, uh, a caucus requires you to show up uh, among your friends and neighbors and openly declare who you're for. So at some point in time, we will probably have to do that. Right now, we want to make sure that every candidate uh, gets a, a good welcome to, to, uh, to Iowa uh, that gives, gives them the opportunity to make their case. Um, and uh, at some point in time, probably later in the year, uh, we'll make a decision. All right. Well, Secretary Volside, thank you so much for sharing your insight into this year's Democratic race. You bet. Thank you. Again, a big thank you to Secretary Vilsack there. Really interesting stuff. I know we don't usually cover a lot of political stuff, but I, I don't think we've, you know, had the chance to as a podcast. So this year is going to be very interesting. And, you know, like I said, we don't necessarily touch this stuff that often. But at the end of the day, what if one of those candidates becomes our new president? I think it's important that we remain informed on what their values are and what their plans are for rural America. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good to know uh, where their heads are at. That's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, listeners, if you want to know where our heads are at, we're fairly frank on the podcast. You can catch past <laughs> issues by going to our website at agnewsdaily.com. That'll take you to our new home at the Global Ag Network. You can tune into us. You can tune into Girls Talk Ag. You can tune into the Topsoil Podcast and a lot of other ag-focused podcasts all right there in one convenient location. And you can also interact with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're there. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we shall appear. With that, Madison Honkamp, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.